0: Uh, well, thank you so much. I just wanted to say I love this practice of allowing the psalm to guide your your prayer time together. Such a rich uh, Christian history in allowing the psalms to, to guide our prayers together. You know, you mentioned your continued growing appreciation for the psalms. One of the things I really like about the psalms is the way that they get quoted in the New Testament. Um and I especially love the one that we heard this morning because it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, and it is the the author of Hebrews quotes the psalm as though it is Jesus who is speaking it. Uh, so that's sort of an interesting experiment sometimes to kind of read the psalms in the voice of Jesus, right? And this this quotation is especially interesting. So if you get bored while I'm preaching this morning, which you know I totally expect. Uh, can check that out in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, check out some, the quotation from Psalm 40 there that we heard this morning. Uh, I want to say thank you for allowing me to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm not here as any kind of official representative of Eastern Nazarene College. Pastor Shaw just asked me to come preach this morning, but I do feel compelled just to say thank you um, that at ENC we, we are partners with you in the local church and And glad to have the opportunity to partner in this way, um, and grateful for your your support and your prayer. Um, So, just want to say thank you. With that, uh, why don't we get to the real reason that we're here this morning? Uh, Would you, as you are willing and able, stand for the reading of the gospel? Our gospel text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. This comes after the women have been to the tomb and found it empty and have encountered the risen Christ. Starting in verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. They are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hands in his side, I will not believe my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. So did you notice how this passage begun? This is a resurrection story, right? This is, as as we already mentioned, we are still in the Easter season, right? Easter is not just one day of the year, but is an entire seven weeks leading up to Pentecost and Ascension. Uh, So we are still in the Easter season, still hearing these resurrection stories from the Gospels. And yet, you know, we might expect sort of hopefulness and new life, new beginnings, right? But the way that this passage begins is that the followers of Jesus have locked themselves in a room because they're afraid. Now let's think for a moment about why that might be the case, right? Not only have Jesus' disciples lost a friend, their teacher, their leader, but Jesus has been executed as, in essence, the leader of a rebellion, right? I mean... Remember the sign that hangs over Jesus on the cross, right? Remember, what does it say? The king of the Jews, right? The Romans had lots of ways of killing and torturing people. Crucifixion was not the most painful among them, but it was the most shameful. And this is in a culture dedicated, arranged, organized by honor and shame that one of the worst things that can happen to you in this culture is for you to be publicly put to shame. And that is, in fact, exactly the point of crucifixion. That you are hung up publicly for everyone to see, stripped naked, embarrassed, ashamed in front of everyone. It's a sort of public service announcement from Rome that says, if you mess with us, this is what happens to you. And that form of death was not just handed out to anybody. It was reserved for a particular kind of criminal. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, you may remember the story, right, where many translations say two thieves hung on either side of Jesus, right? as he's hung on the cross. You all know this story, right? Many translations call them thieves, but some more recent translations will say something like rebels or bandits. I think that's a better translation. The Greek word there is... Lestai. And it sort of indicates that they're rebels against Rome. They're, they're insurrectionists, right? Much like Barabbas, who was released in place of Jesus. That to be crucified is not to be executed as a common criminal. It is to be executed as an enemy of the state, a revolutionary, a threat to Roman power. So it's not surprising then that Jesus' disciples have locked themselves in a room out of fear. As these sort of revolutions often go, if one leader was executed, it wasn't uncommon for somebody else to step up in their place and begin to lead the rebellion after them. And so it could be that that's what the disciples are thinking, right? That we're next on the list that our leader, our teacher, our friend has been crucified and we may be the ones that the Roman soldiers come after next. And so they have locked themselves in a room out of fear of what comes next, what might happen now that Jesus has been crucified. It's in that context of fear and, and doubt and being locked away, right, that they've, they've separated themselves from the world. It's in that context that Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears to them. And, and we get a hint here that like Jesus' body, although he has a real physical body, we hear from other parts of the Gospel story, right, he's able to eat fish and, and do things like that. And even here he has Thomas touch his hands and his side, so he has a body. But it's apparently a very different kind of body, this resurrected body, because although the room is locked, Jesus just shows up in the midst of them. And it's in that context of, of their fear and doubt and being locked away that Jesus appears, and what are the first words that He speaks to them? Words that are repeated three times in this passage. "Peace be with you." You know, I think one of the things that I've learned that is if a single story in Scripture repeats something over and over, pay attention. This is something that you're not supposed to miss. Peace be with you. Now, again, try and put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They have swung in this moment, I assume, from some of the greatest hopelessness and despair and grief that they have ever experienced to, oh my gosh, the guy that we've been following, the, the guy in whom all our hopes were penned, the one who was the leader of our revolution, he's standing in front of us again. Yeah, right? So there's that excitement, that hope, the despair that was there, it's fading away and being replaced with this hope. But you know, there might be some other feelings happening too. After Jesus says, peace be with you, he shows them his hands and his side. The the places of Rome's violence against him, right? They see the very signs, the, the tangible remains again on this resurrected body. But even in the resurrected body, these wounds don't go away. They're still part of who Jesus is. These reminders of what Rome has done. That in crucifying Jesus, they have not merely crucified an individual, but they have crucified these disciples' hopes and dreams for what the world is supposed to be. And I just imagine that as they touch these wounds, as they see them, that again they're reminded of Rome's violence against them. In fact, re- reminded of Rome's continuing oppression against the Jewish people. That perhaps as that joy and hope comes in, that maybe some other feelings come in as well, that maybe the revolution's not over. That, hey, you know, if Rome gave Jesus their best shot and he's standing in front of us, maybe we can still go fight. As they touch Jesus' wounds, maybe some some desire for vengeance starts to well up in them and they think, If Jesus has this kind of power, that even his power is not limited by death, maybe we have more power than Rome does after all. Maybe we can go find the folks who did this. Maybe we can let them know who's really in charge. But what does Jesus say again? Peace be with you. That perhaps Jesus knows that as they touch these wounds and are reminded of the violence that really in many ways has ruled their lives, that perhaps he knows that those feelings are there, and he reminds them again, peace be with you. And you notice what else he goes on to say? I mean, this is a remarkable statement in all of the Gospels. That in addition to saying, peace be with you, well, first of all, he breathes on them, right? Bad, you know, not a good text for a COVID era, right? Uh, he breathes on them. It's kind of weird in, in, in one way of looking at it, right? But the thing, one of the things that's so interesting about the Gospel of John is that, like, everything in the Gospel of John has a sort of double meaning, right? Um, there's always this kind of literal meaning, and he breathes on them, but also this sort of spiritual meaning, right? And so I think when Jesus breathes on them, it's meant to remind us of the very breath of God in the Genesis story, right? In the creation story. That how do the, hum- the, the first human beings come to life? Jesus breathes the very... Sorry, God breathes the very spirit of God into them, right? And this is what makes creation whole, that brings creation to life. And so I think as Jesus breathes on them... He is giving them his spirit. He is breathing the very spirit of God into them. That same spirit which had inhabited Jesus himself, the same spirit which had empowered Jesus' own ministry and all the things that he'd done, now he breathes that spirit on his disciples. This is, in effect, the Johannine Pentecost, right? In in Luke and Acts, we get the story in Acts chapter 2 of the spirit descending upon the disciples after Jesus' ascension into heaven. We don't get that story in the Gospel of John, but this is sort of the equivalent of it, I think, right? The resurrected Jesus breathes his spirit onto these disciples. And in addition to saying, peace be with you now, he adds this remarkable statement. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I mean, that makes me a little nervous, y'all. That seems like a lot of responsibility, right? I mean, because we normally think about it being God who grants forgiveness, right? And of course, that's right. But Jesus doesn't say here, you know, if you forgive the sins of any, I'll think about it, right? He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. You know, in Christian doctrine, we refer to this as the priesthood of all believers, right? That precisely because that spirit that was in Jesus has been breathed onto us, poured out onto us, that in fact, we do have the ability to forgive one another, to impart God's very gift of forgiveness to each other. And perhaps if we read between the lines in the story, what we we might hear Jesus saying is, even Pilate, even the crowds that called for Jesus' crucifixion on Palm Sunday, even the people that you regard as most unforgivable, the ones whose sins you may want to retain and not forgive, Because I've breathed my resurrection spirit on you, you have the power to forgive. And so in the midst of this this locked room, this place where the disciples have sealed themselves off because of, of their fear, the very first words that the resurrected Jesus speaks to the gathered disciples is peace and forgiveness. I don't want us to miss what a crucial moment this is in the gospel text, right? That this is not just sort of, you know, Jesus does a lot of teaching, right? Especially in the gospel of John. He gives these sort of long sermons throughout the gospel of John. But this isn't just any moment in the gospel of John, right? As I said, this is sort of Easter and Pentecost rolled into one, right? That in the moment when the resurrected Jesus appears, and in the moment when he breathes his spirit on the disciples, gives the same spirit that has brought him back to life. In that moment, this is a critical moment, right? The sort of climax of the gospel. And it's like, if there's any moment in the gospel where we should pay attention to what Jesus says, it seems like this would be it. And the message that Jesus has for his disciples in that critical moment is peace and forgiveness. I think that perhaps Jesus and the Gospel of John with the words of Jesus is communicating to us, oh yes, the revolution is still on, but it's not what you thought. The revolution is one of radical peace and forgiveness. That even to those who have caused these wounds to the body, even to those who continue to oppress, even to those who have done violence and wrong, the call for you is peace and forgiveness. No, it's not humanly possible, but the spirit of the resurrected Jesus has been breathed on you. And so the mission you have been given is peace and forgiveness. As the story continues, we find out that one of the disciples wasn't there. Don't know why. Text doesn't tell us why Thomas wasn't around. Apparently we didn't need that explanation, I guess. But he's not there. And so the other disciples come to Thomas and they tell Thomas what they've seen. They say, we've seen the risen Lord. And Thomas is like, yeah, right, y'all. I'm from Virginia. I can say y'all. So just, you know, roll with me, okay? Like, yeah, right. And, and not only, you know, do the disciples say, we've seen the risen Jesus, but Thomas is like, wait, wait, wait. You're telling me that uh, the guy that I saw crucified, dead and buried in a tomb... Not only did he come back to life, but you're telling me that what he said to you is, let's forgive all the people who did all that. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. That's basically Thomas's response, right? I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it, I won't believe until I touch his wounds, right? Until I see him in front of me in the flesh. Poor Thomas, like he gets a bad rap for this, doesn't he? What do we what do we call Thomas all the time? Doubting Thomas. See everybody knows what we're talking about. Doubting Thomas, right? All right. So, I'm just going to be real with y'all, okay? I know I know pastors and chaplains of Nazarene universities are not supposed to have doubts, right? Well, let me be real. I really relate to Thomas, okay? I mean, think about it. If somebody said all those things to you, you you all are probably more pious than I am, right? You, you'd probably be like, yeah, we knew what Jesus was teaching the whole time we were on board. But if somebody came to me and said all those things and said, yeah, he's alive and he wants us to forgive everybody, I think my response would be the same as Thomas's. Like, I'll believe it when I see it. One of the things I love about this story is that well, there's a couple of things, really. One is that Thomas is with them and Jesus shows up again. That in itself, I think, is noteworthy. That whatever Thomas's doubts were, he was there. Yeah, I know, not the first time. Let's cut the guy some slack. But when his fellow disciples came to him and told him all this, he could have just been like, yeah, right, peace, y'all. You've lost it. I'm out. Right? You all lost your minds. But he doesn't. He's there. When Jesus shows up again a week later, Thomas is there. So whatever his doubts have been and really are, there's some part of him that didn't give up. Thomas kept showing up with his doubts, right? And those disciples, though they might have locked themselves in a room because they were afraid, they were still together. So whatever fear and doubts were sort of ruling their lives, there was part of them that didn't give up. They kept meeting together. Maybe it was in fear, maybe it was in doubt, but when Jesus showed up, they were there together at a place where Jesus could show up with them. And when Jesus does show up this week later, the second time, and Thomas is there, I love that he doesn't, he doesn't scold Thomas, right? He doesn't go, oh, well, Thomas, you should have just believed what the others told you, right? In fact, he gives in to Thomas's request, essentially, right? What did Thomas say needed to happen for him? I won't believe unless I see him in front of me, unless I touch his hands and the place in his side. And what does Jesus say to Thomas? Thomas, look here. Touch my hands. See the holes. Put your hand in the place in my side. Jesus does for Thomas exactly what Thomas says he needs in order to believe. And it results in what is probably the greatest confession of faith in the entire Gospel of John. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Whatever doubts he had, whatever fears these disciples had, they kept meeting together. They kept showing up. They kept supporting one another. (laughs) And Jesus appeared in their midst and answered their needs. There's another sort of layer to this story. That is not only that sort of layer of the immediate context of what's happening with Jesus and the disciples in that Easter weekend, that Passover weekend, but we can also think about this from another perspective, the perspective of the, the writer of this gospel. All right, I'm going to do, you know, I'm, I'm a Bible professor, so if you just let me do my sort of Bible nerd thing here for a couple minutes. Uh, just hang with me, okay? Most biblical scholars, most New Testament scholars, think that the Gospel of John is written somewhere near the end of the first century. So this is actually you know, quite a long time after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension. Uh, and as this Gospel is being written, uh, the, the audience to which John is writing is dealing with their own problems, Right? One of those problems is that in between that time, in between the time of Jesus' death and resurrection and when John is writing this gospel, there's been a war. In 66 to 70 A.D., there is a Jewish rebellion in which a number of Jewish zealots, revolutionaries, rebels, right, rise up against Roman oppression and, and they try to overthrow Rome. And they fail miserably. Uh, Rome completely puts puts down that insurrection, crushes crushes the rebellion uh, with Roman might and uh, pretty much destroys most of the city of Jerusalem and completely destroys the temple, right? The very sort of house of God in Jerusalem, completely burns it to to the ground. And so the followers of Jesus who live during the time in which John is writing this gospel have to sort of contend with this, this reality, right? I mean, any war in your homeland would be threatening. It would be a time of unease and and a lack of safety, right? Uh, A time of fear. But in addition to that, we have to sort of add the tension it would have created specifically for early followers of Jesus, right? It's important to remember here that, you know, today we tend to think of Judaism and Christianity as like separate world religions, right? That's kind of how our minds are conditioned to think about it. We have to remember that in the first century, most, like pretty much all the first followers of Jesus are Jewish, right? Remember, let's not forget Jesus himself is Jewish, right? Uh, he's proclaimed as the Jewish Messiah. Uh, all the first disciples are Jewish, right? This is all a very Jewish story, right? And, and the first people that come to believe in Jesus, many of them are Jewish. And in fact, to sort of your average Roman, it would be pretty hard to distinguish between just Jewish folks generally and Jewish followers of Jesus, right? It would be very hard to see the difference from a Roman perspective. Many of these followers of Jesus are probably still attending synagogue, right? They're they're probably still going to worship in their local houses of worship with other Jewish brothers and sisters who are not followers of Jesus right they haven't sort of forsaken their jewish identity just because they're following jesus as the jewish messiah and so you can imagine though the kind of uncomfortable position that that would put all jewish people but especially jewish followers of jesus in after this war right i mean if the jewish people have there's just been a rebellion against rome you may kind of want to distance yourself a little bit from folks who were part of that insurrection, part of that rebellion, right? So that Rome doesn't see you as a target. And in fact, most scholars think that that's, I mean, the details are fuzzy as to exactly how this went down, but the sort of common scholarly theory is that there was some tension between uh, Jewish folks and Jewish folks who followed Jesus that even though up to this time they'd probably been worshipping together in the same synagogues, that maybe there was a a bit of tension here, partially because of that war, partially maybe because they were starting to distinguish some of their beliefs from each other. But the point here, and so now I've done the Bible nerd thing, right? I promise, promise it has a payoff, okay? The point here is that when we start back in that first verse of this passage, And the Gospel of John says that the disciples of Jesus had locked themselves in a room, and you notice it says, for fear of the Jews, specifically. That, yes, perhaps that's probably true of the disciples on that Passover weekend, but maybe maybe it's also true of John's audience in that later in the first century, right? Maybe it's also true of that those early Jesus followers that, for whom John is writing this gospel, maybe this is exactly the situation they find themselves in as well. That it's not merely those first disciples of Jesus, Passover weekend, but that this is where the gospel audience finds themselves also. That even decades later, they've locked themselves in a room for fear of what might happen to them. And so, when Jesus speaks these words of peace and forgiveness, he's not only speaking it to his, you know, 11 disciples on that Passover weekend, but perhaps maybe the the writer of the Gospel of John is having him speak those words to the church decades later as well, saying, look, I know you're afraid. I know there are all kinds of tensions and lacks of security in your life that are making you scared. And I know that maybe like Thomas, you have some doubts. That perhaps, in fact, those doubts are connected to your fear. That maybe you're afraid that, you know, maybe this Jesus wasn't really who we thought he was. After all, because here we are in these difficult life circumstances, maybe maybe Jesus really can't deliver us. And I think Jesus, through the words of the Gospel of John, says to that early church audience, peace be with you. I think maybe the the writer of the Gospel of John is saying to those early churches I know you're afraid, and I know you have doubts, but if you'll just keep showing up, the resurrected Jesus will show up too. One of the reasons I love this passage of Scripture so much is because I think that a lot of times we think of fear and doubt as the opposite of faith. Anybody ever feel that way? Any ever, anybody ever been made to feel that way by somebody else? You know, right, if you're a good Christian, you're not supposed to have any fears or any doubts at all, right? You're just 100% holiness all the time. Now, to be sure, I, I believe that our faith does help us with our fears and our doubts in certain ways, right? No doubt about that. But I love this passage because I think it speaks to us to say that fear and doubt are not the opposite of faith. That is to say that if you have fear or doubt, it doesn't mean that you don't have faith, right? But that sometimes what it means to have faith, in fact, the the Greek word here and and the Hebrew word that's used as well, it often gets translated as faith, but it also means faithfulness, right? Right? That in in the mindset of most of the biblical writers, to have faith is to be faithful. They are the same thing. Faith is not merely what you believe, it is what you do, it is how you live. And, And so I think that maybe one of the things that the Spirit of God is speaking to us as a church today, through passages like this one, is yeah, bring all your fears and all your doubts, but just keep showing up. That if you will gather with your brothers and sisters, and in that gathering bring bring your fears and bring your doubts, Jesus is not going to be like, sorry, y'all, y'all have got too much fear and doubt, I'm not showing up. That in precisely those moments, the resurrected Jesus with the wounds still on his body, show up among those who have fear and who have doubt but who have been faithful to show up anyway that's what i believe i i believe that if we will just be faithful even when we have fear and when we have doubt even when we're not sure that if we'll just keep showing up and worshiping together and serving together and caring for the poor and the marginalized together. That if we'll just keep doing that, whatever our doubts are, whatever our questions are, bring those to Jesus too and Jesus will show up, the resurrected Christ will show up in that moment and breathe his Holy Spirit on us and say, yeah, I know you've got doubts, I know you've got fears, but if you forgive the sins of any, They are forgiven because the Ruach of God, the spirit of the living Christ has been breathed on you to enable you to live into this new, most radical of all revolutions, that we as the people of the resurrected Savior can be a people of peace and forgiveness, even as we are a people of fear and doubt. One last word as I wrap up this morning. Uh, I go to North Street Church of the Nazarene in Hingham. Uh, and uh, one of the pastoral staff there, his name is Pastor Kurt. Uh, he works uh, with folks who struggle with addiction at uh, the Anchor, which is uh, a ministry started by our church there in, in Hull, the town right next door to Hingham. And uh, Pastor Kurt's been talking to us in this discipleship series that we have at our church uh, and and last uh, a couple weeks ago he talked to us about uh, this sort of examination of the heart uh, this kind of this practice of self-examination and in the midst of talking about that uh, Kurt told us a little bit of his own story so Kurt himself had, had struggled with addiction in the past um, and he talked about how when he first met uh, he his kind of first Christian mentor was teaching him about this This practice of self-examination or examination of the heart. That one of the things that he realized, so one of the things that happens in the self-examination is you have to take a look at your own resentments. Who are you upset with? Who are you mad at? And you have to take a look at your own fears and kind of take inventory of that and really sit with that and reflect on why do I have this resentment? Why do I have this fear? And he talked about how he realized that as he went through this practice over and over again, that often whenever he had resentment in his life, whenever he was angry with somebody, upset with somebody, he realized that usually that was tied to some fear that he had. So, you know, he, he talked about his life and uh, dealing drugs, and, you know, he talked about how when, if somebody would, would disrespect him, right? And he felt like he had to sort of get even with them, right? Because that was part of the culture that he, he lived into. He had to, he had to get revenge. Uh, and he said, you know, why, why was it that I felt the need to do that? He said, the real reason was because I was afraid. I was afraid that if I didn't exact revenge, if I didn't stand up to this person who had disrespected me, that, that other people would see me as soft, right? That our resentments, our our anger is often tied to really deep and personal fears. I think that has all kinds of profound consequences for us individually. Uh, I would invite you to kind of ponder that practice yourself as you think about where are the resentments in your life, where is the anger that exists, who are the folks that, you know... If you had experienced this loss that the disciples had felt and then the resurrected Jesus showed up among you, who would be that you might want to go after? And then ask yourself, what am I afraid of? I think that's not only a good practice for us as individuals, but maybe a good practice for us as a church body as well. I think there's a lot of ways that could apply, but one that comes into mind in particular for me is the way that the church these days often kind of gets dragged into the culture wars. Right? I know. Now I'm now I'm treading on dangerous territory. That's where I get myself in trouble. But right, like we so often get dragged into these political fights, these culture wars. And we have all kinds of resentment and anger, you know, it's all over social media, right? I know none of you ever participate in those kind of conversations, I'm sure. It's just me uh, that gets dragged into that kind of stuff. But I would ask, like, what are we afraid of? Right? Like, what fear is it that drives our participation in those kinds of debates, those kinds of political battles? And I think that if we can be honest about our fears... And our doubts, not only sort of individually, but also as a church body. That again, I believe that the resurrected Jesus will show up among us, breathe his Holy Spirit on us, and remind us that our revolution is not one to win a culture war, not one to win a political battle, But it's to be a people of peace and forgiveness in a way that is so radical that people look at us and they see the resurrected Christ. That when they look at our body gathered together, that they see the body of Jesus still wounded still vulnerable but also something radically new because the spirit of God has been poured out on us in this new way I think we're going to uh, close with a song or um, as we move forward as we do that I just invite you to bring your fears and your doubts to the risen Lord And know that he is there to show you his own vulnerable body. And to breathe on you God's spirit.
1: I know that whenever one preaches, everybody in the congregation hears something slightly different that the Holy Spirit guides them to. Uh, David, I am... Particularly thankful this morning for the word peace. David will be in the foyer after the service. You can go tell him what you got out of it. This is what I got out of it. Peace is not just what we need when we're seeing an angel of the Lord or Jesus back from the dead. Peace is something that God fills us with. Shalom. Something that God fills us with making it possible for us to be the people that he intended us to be. It's not just feeling okay in a terrifying situation, but it's equipping for the ministry of forgiveness to be able to become all that God wants us to be. That's what God provides for us in his peace. So share after the service with David something that you've received from the Lord as he's preached. And thank you for that good word, brother. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, just as Jesus spoke with his fearful, doubting disciples 2,000 years ago, so you have spoken to us this morning. Lord, we didn't gather here this morning to see a show, to be entertained. We gathered here this morning to hear from you, and your Holy Spirit is always faithful in speaking truth to us. But Lord, we have a week facing us, uh, uh, seven days ahead, during which we will have untold opportunities to speak words of peace, untold opportunities to address our fears and our doubts. Untold opportunities to speak a word of grace and love, to demonstrate the love of Christ in some tangible way. Thank you on this Sabbath day for preparing us for the week ahead. We commit ourselves to follow wherever you lead, Lord.
0: Amen.